Um, so tonight we are uh, we're we're looking at uh, the 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 doctrine of the Trinity or understanding the Trinity. Um, one of the reasons why I think this is particularly important is because the tr- the doctrine of the Trinity is one of those when you say. What does it mean that God is triune, or what is the Trinity? Most people, I think, especially people in the church, go, ah, I don't know, it's something bigger than we can understand. And that's usually the, the one-line kind of moniker you just give to it. It's something bigger than, than anybody can understand. And certainly that's true. It, it, it is bigger than we can understand. That's true. Um, but... There's another side to it as well. And I think in the church so often, we can just write things off as bigger than we understand and just kind of set it over here to the side so that I don't have to think about it any longer. And that's unfortunate because as we've been talking about over the last few months, this that I hold in my hand, we believe to be the inerrant, infallible word of God. And we said what that means is that we think God has revealed himself to humanity in this book. And so, if God has revealed himself as triune, if he has revealed the Trinity in the pages of Scripture, then to simply write it off as something beyond what we can comprehend and just set it over here to the side is negligence on our part. Especially if there are things that he has revealed about himself that he wants us to know. If they're in the pages of the text, then he is okay with us knowing it, right? We've already talked about at length about that. So when it comes to understanding the Trinity, I I think it's helpful first um, to be able to draw lines. Like to be able to say, I don't know this. I don't know anything beyond that. These pages of scripture just don't reveal anything beyond this. But this right here, I can know. He has told me that, and I can trust that it's true. And so when it comes to the Trinity, there's usually a couple of questions that I I typically get asked or that are asked about the Trinity, and they kind of fall into two broad categories. And this is is where we're going to approach tonight. I want a full disclosure of where my intention is to go. Um, We've been talking a lot about knowing God, understanding God uh, on, on a much deeper level. And I understand there's probably some things that we've talked about that are either things you've never thought of before or things that you've never heard talked about before or maybe are things, to be honest, are just not that interesting to you. That's okay because we're about to pick up speed and we're about to get into a lot more things that are, um, that are, are either highly debatable or that are discussed quite a bit. But... Next week, we won't meet because it's spring break, but then the week after that, we will meet. That'll be business meeting, okay? The week after that, so it'll be two weeks from now, we'll begin looking at the occult. In particular, two, um, two uh, sects of the occult that are prevalent in our society, namely the Mormonism and Jehovah's Witness. Um, the reason that this is really important for us. And the reason that I wanted to get to this first before we go into the occult is because both of those branches of the occult that come to your doorstep abuse this doctrine in particular. So 
I think what's going to happen is we're going to get to the occult. We're going to look at Jehovah's Witness and Mormonism. And I'm not sure if we're going to do that over one week or two weeks, but we're going to look at both of those. And I think what you're going to see is that, especially if we've been keeping up over the last, I don't know, six months that we've been doing this, you already now are equipped to refute the things that they say on your doorstep. Um, and so all I'm going to do when we get there is just bring to light some of the things that they believe, and you're, it's hopefully going to hit those triggers in your brain that go, that, that's not right. I know that's not right. Um, but we have to get here first, and we have to lay out the doctrine of the Trinity. What, what does that mean? How can I be confident in knowing what that actually means, and what does the Bible actually say about it? And so we're going to look at some passages of Scripture, and, and then we're going to determine what we can actually say is true about God in the Trinity, right? The first thing we're going to start, about, start, start with is the Old Testament. So think about this in the Old Testament. If you only had your Old Testament, what would you know about God? Somebody take for me Genesis 1, 26 and 3, 22. Who will grab that for me and read it out loud? All right, Hannah Payne. And who will take Isaiah 6, 8 for me? All right, David Maxwell. Hannah, when you get to the Genesis passages, go ahead and read that and listen close as she reads. Okay. And 322. Okay. Hang on to those verses. David Maxwell, read Isaiah 6 8 for us. Okay. Did you hear something in common in all three of those verses? These are three of many verses in the Old Testament, but I just chose three good examples. There's a plural us, right? There is a, a first person plural uh, us. Uh, sorry, not uh, uh, yes, anyway, sorry, plural us. I, I'm losing my grammar right now. I don't care to think about it. Uh, but there is, there, is an, there is an us in all three of those verses. And these are three of many verses in the Old Testament that tell us that there is a plurality to God. And here's something that's very interesting, I think, is that even to a Jew to this day, if you're to bring up Genesis 1.26 or 3.22 or 6.8, most of them will not have an answer for you as to why there is a reference there in the third person. That's significant. All right? That's significant. That... God says in the old God God says in the Old Testament he uses the plural us instead of only saying I or me. And to this day you bring up Genesis 1:26, 3:22, Isaiah 6:8, many others. There's not really an answer. One answer that some people give is there's times in language where we use this they call it plural of majesty where like a king may say it pleases us to you know, to, to whatever, give this to the people or, or whatever, right? To make this edict, right? It's, they call that the plural of majesty, that the person is so um, high uh, and lifted up that they can say, they can use a plural because they're so grand, right? Sounds pompous, uh, but that's what it's called in grammar is the plural of majesty. In Hebrew, there is no such thing as a plural of majesty. 
It doesn't exist. So it's not as if that's what's going on here at all. Um, there is clear use in the Old Testament of the plural in reference to God. So what does that tell us about God? That there's, that there's more than one something, that there's at least a, a plurality there. And we don't, maybe if we just had our Old Testament, we wouldn't know any more than that. But there is plurality from the beginning. Before he even creates man, he says, let us make man in our image. Man has become like us, knowing the difference between good and evil. Who will go for us? There's plurality from the beginning in the Godhead, okay? So that's, that's one thing we can for sure know in the Old Testament. Now let's go to two, two more passages here. Psalm 45, 6-7, who will take that? All right, Ann Brooks, uh, Psalm 110.1. All right, uh, Jeannie Maxwell, if you'll take that one. All right, and Miss, Mrs. Brooks, whenever you have it, if you'll read it out loud. Okay, now that one's really hard, but right there at the very end, she says, read that last, like, two lines. Okay, did you hear that? Therefore, God, your God has anointed you. It's interesting, right? Okay, uh, Psalm 110.1. 1. The Lord says to my Lord. Now, what do those mean? What are, what are those saying? Any idea? This one's a hard one. But as you think about that, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand while I make your enemies a footstool. Right. Right. There's some, again, we're seeing plurality there, right? There's two people, two persons, we'll say, identified as Lord in both of those statements. They're clearly distinct, but the significance is that they're both recognized as God. Both of them are called Lord in this, right? They're both recognized as Lord. And Jesus even uses that last one from Psalm 110.1. He uses that about himself in the New Testament. The Pharisees are questioning him, and he says, tell me what this means. David said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand while I make your enemies a footstool. He says, how can David say that this guy is, is Lord and that there's another Lord? How, 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 did that, how does that work? And the Pharisees, it says, just refused to question him after that. <laughs> because it's one of those aspects of Scripture that's very difficult, particularly for the Jewish community, to explain. How does this work? But what's very clear, I think, even if you just had the Old Testament, that we didn't have the New Testament, all we were looking at is the Old Testament, is we would definitely see a plurality there. And where we see a plurality in, in God, we would also see that both are identified as God. 
okay? But here's where it gets really interesting. Let's go to Genesis 16, 7 to 3. Who will take that one for me? 7 to 13, sorry. Who will take that one for me? All right, uh, Miss Metters. And Exodus 3, 2 to 6. Who will take that? All right, Stephen Simmons. Uh, Joshua 5, 13 to 15. Who will take that one? All right, uh, Paula. That, that's right, I said it right. Paula. And uh, re- who will take Revelation 22, 8 to 9? All right, uh, uh, yes, Hannah. Uh, and uh, Numbers 22, 35, and 38. All right, uh, uh, yep, yep, Shannon Grant. So they're, they're coming, it's like, I, have, I don't have a computer in my head, I have a Rolodex, and so it t- sometimes it takes a little bit of time. Yeah, it, it takes, you know, to get there. Uh, Genesis 16, 7 to 13, when you've got it. Okay, now that's a really long passage, but I want you to hear some things that are going on in there. First, who is the first character we see in that passage? No, before that, the, before, before that, at the very beginning, the angel of the Lord, right? So there's someone, there's an, a person identified as the angel of the Lord that is standing there in the scene. All right, Hagar is running away from the family and she's going to be encouraged to go back. This is before she's finally banished. Uh, forever. But uh, she's going to be encouraged to go back. The angel of the Lord comes in and does that. He tells her, go back and submit to Sarah. At the end of the passage, what does she call the angel of the Lord? Thou art the God who sees. The God who sees. So we have initially the angel of the Lord which really just means the messenger of the Lord. We don't know the makeup of this person, but a lot of people, some people will assume that this is just simply an angel, right? But at the end of this, Hagar seems to refer to this angel as something different and understand this angel as something different. Well, it gets a little bit weirder. Let's go to Exodus 3, 2 to 6. Now, this is one you're all familiar with, but pay really close attention to who's in the bush, all right? Who's got it? All right, go ahead, Stephen Simmons.
Okay, what scene is this? We all know this scene. Moses in the burning bush, right? How does it identify, who does it identify as in the burning bush? The angel of the Lord, right? Same, same character, assume, we assume we, we just saw with Hagar, is now appears to Moses in the burning bush. And Moses approaches the burning bush, and what does the angel of the Lord say to Moses as he approaches the burning bush? Take your shoes off. Where you're standing is holy ground, all right? Now, I admit, if that was just alone, okay, I'd be odd. We might not be able to necessarily explain it. But I don't know that it would cause us great pause. We'd probably just go back and go, ah, I don't know that I can explain that too much and keep going. But then when we get to Joshua 5, 13 to 15, who's got that one? Paula? Okay, so Joshua approaches this man. He's got a sword in his hand, and Joshua, they're, about, they're getting ready to go to battle, and so he sees this guy, and he says are, what everybody would probably say, are you for us or against us, right? <laughs> Whose team are you on, right, before we kind of get into a skirmish right here? And he just says no. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> that he, he doesn't really identify a team. He just says no. I'm the commander of the armies of the Lord. And what does Joshua do? He falls on his face and what? Worships. All right. That is the first thing that would give me pause as I'm reading this. Fell on his face and worshiped. Hold on to that thought. Second, what does the angel of the Lord tell him? Take off your shoes. The ground you're standing on is holy ground. Now, the reason that I think this is significant is because this is not what typically happens in the presence of an angel. Revelation 22, 8 to 9, just to give us a balance. Who's got that? All right, Hannah, Lord. What do you see? What do you see there that's different than Joshua's interaction? Paula. Right. Right. He doesn't make any effort to correct them, but what's very clear is that an angel that represents God will make it abundantly clear, no, you're not to bow down and worship me. I'm a fellow servant with you. And it's clear that John in Revelation, he, he does this on a couple of occasions, he's not sure exactly what to do because what he's seeing is so miraculous and amazing 
that he's not exactly sure how to process all of this. And so he sees this angel next to him who's revealing all of this stuff to him, which what he's looking at is new heavens, new earth. He turns to, to, to the angel and he begins to worship him. And he goes, whoa, 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 you got it all wrong. You're turning your attention and your affection in the wrong direction. That is not what the commander of the armies of the Lord tells Joshua in Joshua. He allows this man to worship him. That should be very, very odd. In fact, I think it's so odd that this is not your average, average everyday angel that's standing in front of Joshua. Now, Numbers 22, 35, and 38. Who's got that? All right, go ahead, Shannon. Okay, connect those two pieces. In verse 35, the angel of the Lord is standing in front of him. And, he, and remember, this is Balaam and his donkey. The donkey's already spoken to him and, and that kind of thing. And he's been beating the donkey, which is a hilarious story in and of itself. But then the angel of the Lord tells him, all right, you can go with these men, but you only, tell, you only say the words that I give to you. Balaam gets there and he says, I can't just say anything. I can only say the words that God gives to me. What does Balaam recognize about the angel of the Lord that maybe we as the common reader would not recognize? That who's standing in front of him is God himself, right? Um, in, what, I, what I would say to you is that in the vast majority of cases, unless the context dictates otherwise, in the Old Testament, when you see the angel of the Lord, that's not just your average everyday angel. That is... Christ, pre-incarnate, all right? Before he becomes Jesus of Nazareth, Christ pre-incarnate as a messenger of the Lord, commander of the armies of the Lord, however you want to articulate it over and over. He, he reappears throughout the story. He appears there with Gideon in Judges on several occasions in the book of Judges to Samson's parents. He appears there. Um, there's one case, uh, I think it's with Samson's parents, where they actually offer up a sacrifice right in front of him, uh, and, and he goes up in the smoke uh, of, the, of the offering. Uh, the angel of the Lord is pretty significant. So as we see, first, that there's a plurality in the Godhead from the beginning, and then as we start to read a little bit more, all this plurality, we see multiple persons recognized as Lord or as God. And then all of a sudden we have now this third kind of thing where the angel of the Lord that appears so often in the Old Testament appears to, to allow people to fall down on their face and worship him. And he's okay with that. Where we know that the Bible expressly forbids the worship of angels. We saw that in Colossians. And so here you've got characters doing it and they're not stopped in some places, and then they are in others. So it should at least do what for us? What does that do? If we're, we just have our Old Testament, we don't have our New Testament, what does that do for us? Yeah, yeah. We know that there's at least a, 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 some sort of personhood going on and that they're separate, right? Yeah. Anything else? Is, is anything connecting up here? Are you thinking... Do anything else for us? There's multiple 
Yeah, manifest in more than one way, right? Yeah. All right, let's go over to the New Testament. He'll take Matthew 3, 16 to 17 for me. David Maxwell, go ahead and read that when you got it. figured your Bible would just fall open to Matthew by this point. Surely have it bookmarked. Yeah. <laughs> That's where Bible drill comes in handy. So what do you see in that picture? All, all three. So there's, there's three persons. They're doing three distinct things, three different things. So here's Jesus that gets up out of the water. Here is God the Father who speaks from on high, and here's the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Three, all three persons of the triune Godhead all doing different things, all present together in the exact same scene. Okay, that's really significant, all right? But it doesn't give us much more conclusive than that, right? That there's three members, they're all doing three distinct things. So let me get to Matthew 28, 19. Probably know this, probably read this a hundred times. Somebody read that out when you get there. All right, so when we go out, this is the Great Commission, we go out as Christians, as a church, and we're proclaiming the gospel message, and people are believing, and they're, they're coming to us, and they're being baptized. Under whose name are we baptizing them? Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, the reason that I think that that's interesting is because there are people in Acts that are identified as receiving John's baptism. We saw this last week when we were talking about baptism. They received John's baptism but hadn't received Christ's baptism, right? It's called John's baptism. I mean, you were essentially baptized under John's authority, as it were. And he's saying when the church goes out and baptizes all of these people, whose authority are they baptizing under? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's the authority. The thing that gives them the authority to baptize is the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So what does that tell us about these three members that were present when Jesus was baptized? They all have authority. There, there's there's a, a same levelness to all three of them, right? So they all have authority. They all have effectively the same. They're all on the same level, right? Okay. Again, we're just drawing conclusions. What do we see in the text? Okay. Let's go to the next set of passages. Ephesians 4, 4 to 6. Ephesians 4, 4 to 6. Who will take that for me? All right, Ann, 
Brooks, and 1 Corinthians 12, 4 to 6. All right, uh, Blake, if you'll take that. And Anne, when you get there, just go ahead and read. Okay. Blake, go ahead and read yours. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries, but the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God works all things and all through. Okay. In both of those passages, what do you hear? Who do you hear called out? What's that? There's one, you hear that repeated over and over, one, 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 all right? He says one God, but then in both passages, he also says one Lord, which typically is the New Testament way of referring to Jesus Christ, is Lord, okay? One God, one Lord, is the Spirit also identified in both passages? Yes, he is. So he says, look, you've been called, but you, and you've been gifted by one Spirit, right? one Lord, and, and, and you have been sent by, by one God. What is Paul trying to identify in both of those passages? That though there is plurality, though there is threeness, there's also oneness, right? Does that make sense? You hear that? That the, though there is three, there is one. Now, we're left to kind of work all that out <laughs> and figure out what that really means and how we would go about explaining it. But as you look at the New Testament and Old Testament, if we were just to have our Bible sitting in front of us, what kinds of conclusions would we draw about the Trinity? Well, we would have to go back to Genesis at the very beginning, and we would have to at least say God has been in plural since the very beginning before man ever came onto the scene. God was plural. And then we also have, would have to say there's something about this angel of the Lord that appears that seems to be different than what's traditionally referred to as God, Yahweh, but is also worthy of worship and appears before us. Right? And when we get to the New Testament, we would also have to say, okay, uh, there are clearly three members present, and it's under those, the, those three authority that we actually baptize new believers. So the faith that they're confessing is of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit that they're all on the same level and worthy of, of worship. I, I hate to break it down to such a simple matter, but the children came up from Sunday school and they wanted to talk about the Trinity. Yeah. And, and, and they, were, they were saying, I, I don't understand. And I said, okay, let's go look at some more. <laughs> we're going to talk about this in just a minute. <laughs> we're going to... Right. Yeah. And and Right. And we're going to we're actually going to deal with that in just a second because and this is one of the reasons why I want to spend some time on the Trinity because um, I think what is common to human experience is that when something is difficult to understand, right? Um, that we think of analogies. Analogies are the best. Sometimes they are 
so helpful in understanding a, a particular thing, whatever it is. And it puts it in, in language we can understand. Uh, the argument that I'm going to make in just a minute is that there is no analogy for the Trinity. But I want to show you why. Because it's, it's, it's really, fundamentally, it's really important that we understand this because then we start to uh, veer if we don't understand it. But that's a really common one. That and I've got a couple other ones that are, that are pretty common explanations for the Trinity. But what we're draw- with the conclusions that we're drawing from the New Testament and Old Testament is simply that we see a threeness, but we also see a oneness. And so we have to kind of keep both of those in, in tension. So basically, the way it has been articulated throughout history, over and over and over again, is God is three persons. Each person is fully God, but God is one essence. Now, what does essence mean? What does essence mean? What is essence? Explain what you mean by that. Independence. We certainly believe God is independent. It's their own. I mean, it's, they're different. Okay. What is one essence, though? The essence. Oh, are you saying that's what makes them different? Essence is what makes something different? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that, that's, a, that's essentially it. So imagine, um, imagine we had two people that came in this room that you had met for the first time, and they looked identical. They were wearing the same clothing, they were the same height, had the same hair color. Everything about them was the same. They had the same likes and dislikes, they had the same past experiences, they were identical twins, they grew up in the same family, they have, I mean, the same DNA. If you took their DNA, it would be exactly the same. There is nothing distinguishable about either of these two people. Are they different people? Why? Because of their essence, right? (laughs) Even if they had the same name, the same exact name, there is something, even if we cannot define it, that is different about those two individuals, right? I I would look at them and I'd say, look, I can't describe why they're different. I I can't tell you, but I know that they are. I know that they are two different people. Because, really, their essence is different. One has the essence of this guy, and the other has the essence of that guy. (laughs) It's about as far as I can go with it. What we're saying about God is, though he is three, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, meaning, if it were possible to come in and and sit down, he would need three stools, right? Three persons. The essence is all the same. One unified essence. Where if, two, if a set of twins sat down, we would say two essences. They, they are different people. With God, he has one essence, though he has three people. That is where we don't have an analogy. We don't have an analogy for that. That is unique inside the Godhead. He is three persons, yet he has the same essence. That's not true of any two people on any three people on the face of this planet, regardless of if they have the same DNA or not. Does that make sense? Questions about that? So isn't that where I guess your analogy of the water the same and ice cube? It would have to be all of those at the same time, and 
Exactly. Yeah. Let's, let's talk about that. There's two analogies. Yes. But, but there's two analogies that, that get right at what you're saying. They get right at the same point. If we keep in mind, I bolded these on the, on the little slide for a reason. Uh, God is three persons. Uh, God is one essence. Three persons, one essence. Three persons, one essence. Drill it in your head. He's three persons. He's one essence. Three persons, one essence. The reason that that's important is because virtually every analogy, whether it attempts to or not, undermines one of those points. Okay? And I want to show, it. I want to show you two common analogies. One is the water one that you just used, but then the other is of a person. Here is, meet Joe. I don't know who this is. I just grabbed a picture off the internet. <laughs> so, here, here is poor guy. I'm sure he was really posing for that, and he didn't know he was going to be used in a church somewhere. Um, here's Joe. Joe is, here's, let me just illustrate the Trinity for you. This is going to be really easy, right? Here's Joe. He is a dad. He is a husband. And he is an uncle. Three, one, right? This is a common illustration. Anybody heard this illustration before for the Trinity, right? Okay. What it does, though, when if you keep in mind the three persons, one essence, is it eliminates three persons. There's not three persons there. It's the same person that represents all three different roles. One person plays three different roles. If that were the case, when Jesus gets up out of the water, we would see Jesus and Jesus and Jesus. Jesus would say, I am my own beloved son in whom I am well pleased, right? And the spirit of Jesus would descend on him like a dove. But that's not what we see when he gets baptized. We see three distinct persons there present. Does that make sense? Okay. Now we get to the water analogy. Water is the molecule H2O. That's the H2O molecule. It's just a representation of somebody drew. I yanked off the internet again. Um, and the analogy, as you put it, is, and this is a very common analogy, people use this all the time, uh, God is three in one. He is I, like ice, water, and vapor, all of which are um, water, is H2O, right? The problem is it breaks down when it comes to being one, is it going to change? Essence, there it is, one essence. It's not one essence because... If you're thirsty, and I said, here's an ice cube, would you like that? Can you drink an ice cube? Essence is more than molecular. It's not just the molecules. There's something about that ice cube that I would say, this is not water. In fact, I even call it a different name because it's so different. I can't drink an ice cube, but I can drink water. I can't drink a vapor, but I can drink water. Ice cube has its own use. It's for its own thing right? It has a totally different essence entirely. And so, you know, some of these are, are sometimes helpful, I think, when, when people, when we try to describe the Trinity, but ultimately they end up violating and undermining what we're getting at. Truth is, when it comes to the there's no illustration that actually works, that, that is fully biblical, that w- works out all the way. We just have to remember he is three persons, yet he has the same essence. All three have the exact same essence. There is what I like to say is a litmus test. When you start to think of analogies for the Trinity, there's two passages of Scripture I'm going to put up here. First is from Colossians 1.19. 
For in him, that's Christ he's talking about. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. For in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Think about that for just a moment. That when you see Christ standing in front of you, the full representation of the deity is right there in front of you, in Christ. Which leads to this, when Jesus, which is why Jesus can say to Thomas, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Why? Because they have the same essence. That's what's indistinguishable. Though we're three persons, we have the exact same nature, everything, exact same essence between all three. That's where it can get kind of mind-boggling. We can stretch our brains a little bit. But it's important to know where the line is. This is what he's revealed to us in Scripture. Period. It's three persons, one essence. Now, do we totally understand what that's like? No. Go ahead, Becky. Tozer said that um, there's no way humanly for us to describe the Trinity because any words that we would use to try to describe would be created words, and God was not created. He is the creator. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And there are some areas, uh, uh, some things about God that are different. If we could describe every ounce of him, we would be God, not him, right? We would be the one that's indescribable. Um, so there's some parts where we, 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 we can't know, but what we can ascertain from Scripture is that this is true. So there's two questions, remember. There's, there's two questions. The main question being, uh, how do we make sense of any of this, right? What, what, how, how do we kind of boil down Scripture into some very understandable bites uh, God is three persons, one essence. I think that, that's pretty clear in Scripture. Now, does it really matter? Or really asking the question, why does it matter? We're going to dive into this in a couple weeks when we start to uh, kind of roll out what some of the um, heresies uh, purport or believe. But what happens when you begin to take some of these doctrines and twist them or not understand them? This is historical. This is a list of Trinitarian heresies that have appeared in history over the last two, two millennia. Uh, I'm not going to read them. We're not going to explain them all or anything like that. But you can see all of these, in all, in, in the, in all of these, there is some way in which they've twisted a doctrine of at least one of the persons in the Godhead. Sometimes, most of the time, they twist Christ. Uh, sometimes they twist the Holy Spirit. Uh, sometimes they twist... And this is not all the heresies that have appeared uh, in history. These are all specifically related to the nature of ideas that they have twisted. Now, two of them, two, or two heresies appear in our day. Jehovah's Witness and Mormonism. And what makes them specifically heresies is they claim to be teaching the words of Christ. And yet they twist it utterly. 
And the center of what they get wrong is in the Trinity. One of the persons of the Godhead or more. Sometimes with Mormonism, we tend to focus on things like, oh, they say you get your own planet when you die. And they do, you know, we point out all these sort of like really um, somewhat eccentric things. To be honest with you, I'm not even really concerned about those things. I'm going to tell them that when we, when Jesus comes back, we're going to inherit the whole earth, right? There's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. To some, that's going to sound weird. So I'm not really worried about that as much as I am. Let's, let's get down to the center of what you believe and where you have gone astray. And it centers around Christ, nature of who he is, what he's done for both of them. And so what happens for us is if we don't at least understand this, keep it in perspective, understand that God is three persons, he is one essence, and knowing where my boundary is. I can't really go too much further into that because honestly, his word really hasn't revealed much more than that. And probably my brain would explode if he did, right? (laughs) So I'm not sure I could understand it if he did. So knowing where my line is, I can't go beyond that. But what most of the heretics do is they tend to go beyond the line. They tend to start trying to make clear what is intentionally cloudy. 